0: Thank you, Earl and Music Team and Catherine for reading our scripture this morning. Um, if you're a visitor or a guest, my name's Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. It's my privilege to be with you and speak with you this morning. It's so nice to see your faces. Um, and thank you again as a immune compromised person. I, I just want to tell you how personally grateful I am in the way that this church has navigated this pandemic. It's uh, been a, a great comfort to me. This is a place that I've felt absolutely comfortable and safe, um, and it's uh, because of all of you, so thank you very much. I also want to recognize, um, I even hesitate to call her a guest. She's a member of our family. Evelyn, would you mind standing or raising your hand? This is, is Evelyn. She's the beloved mother of Earl, our music minister. Um Evelyn, um, Evelyn heard I made a joke about Ohio and decided to move here. Uh, God showing me that um, truly wonderful things come out of the state of Ohio. So, Evelyn, thank you for being here, making a long journey, um, moving from a place she's lived a long time to, to make a, a home here for whatever season God has her. So I hope that you feel welcome and we're so blessed by your family uh, to be part of our bodies. So, thank you. We're so happy to have you. Um, but I have to say that, Evelyn, you've moved to a dangerous place. Um, and I say that somewhat jokingly, but, but it's a serious point I want to make this morning, that, it, that as far as being a Christian is concerned, you and I live in the most dangerous country, in the most dangerous state, perhaps to be a follower of Christ but but not for the usual metrics of danger by which we measure how dangerous it is to be a Christian in the world today. We live in a country of religious freedom where we're not being dragged out of churches and beaten in the streets for having a church service. Certainly we feel like the culture is against us in many ways and that's true but but our danger is a danger to our spiritual lives. As American Christians, it's our, it's our comfort, it's our affluence, it's our access to such a vast range of options that places us at spiritual peril. We have too many options, too many choices. 27,000 churches in the state of Texas Vis-a-vis 600 in the state of Rhode Island. Granted, there's a geographical disparity there, but but my point is, is that we have such a range of options. We have so many churches available to us that we don't even recognize them, perhaps, as we drive down the road. As I've driven across the country, my wife and I have remarked that at the amount of time and effort and resources that go into just maintaining buildings and, and houses of worship And perhaps that might distract us from the real work of the gospel. Modern Protestantism has expanded vastly since the turn of the 20th century. Independent Protestant churches like ours have become the largest Christian tradition after Roman Catholicism. We have so many options. And I can't help but wonder as I look at what Paul says to Timothy. He says, the time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Friends, that is to say that we have so many options. We can go anywhere we want and hear what we want to hear, be told the things that conform to what we think is right. And it's not it's not a modern problem. You see it today is as Jesus concludes his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. He's he's finished all of his main teaching points of this sermon and he, and he now presents to those who would listen to him with the urgent necessity to make a radical choice to obey his teaching and to put it into practice, to not merely be consumers of the world or the word rather or the religious goods, the but to obey his teachings and to put it into practice. And his question for them and his question for us this morning is, is, are you merely a hearer of the word? Or are you a doer of the word? Throughout this sermon, Jesus has has painted a series of contrasts from the very beginning up until this point. He's Contrasted two types of blessedness in the Beatitudes. Kingdom blessedness versus worldly blessedness. He's contrasted two kinds of righteousness and devotion. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees versus the true, sincere righteousness that God is calling us to as, as his followers. He's contrasted two kinds of treasure, worldly treasure, that people may put their trust in versus heavenly treasure that God is calling us To invest in. He's contrasted two masters. The master yourself. The one that causes anger and lust. And murder and adultery. Or God. To be your master. And he's contrasted two ambitions. Material security that the world calls us. And our anxiety calls us to chase after. Or will our ambition be God's rule over our life? These are the contrasts that Christ has been making in this sermon to these people of Old Testament Israel, calling them to a true God-centered righteousness that fulfills God's perfect, unchanging law. So here at the end of his sermon, he, he provides another set of contrasts, two ways, a broad way and a narrow way. Two teachers, false teachers and true teachers. Two pleas, words and deeds, and two foundations. A foundation of sand, shifting sand, and a foundation of rock that will allow us to endure the storms of life. He's basically saying, do this God's way, the right way. And it's a difficult road. It's a lesser traveled path, but it's one that leads to life. Because he also says there's a cold, hard reality that there's a more popular, a more visible, and more well-worn and traveled way. And this way might seem right. It might seem obvious, but it's a way that leads to death, Jesus tells us. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, um, Lord Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life, and and no one comes to the Father except through you. God, help us to grow deeper in our likeness of your Son, Jesus, through the power of your Word. Open our hearts and our minds this morning to... um, Help us to see ourselves in light of who you are and and what you're telling us to become. And help us to grow and to be your people, a kingdom people, for your glory. Amen. Well, last week, our our guest preacher, in, in looking at the preceding 12 verses of this chapter, proposed that the only way we can live out the golden rule is to have a changed heart. God's in the business of changing hearts. God's kingdom program is to to bring about his kingdom by changing the hearts of those who would follow him. And throughout his entire teaching here in the sermon, Jesus has been expounding upon the law and the prophets that are so familiar to his first century audience. A people who've grown up their whole lives hearing about god's law hearing the words of the prophets as they call them back to covenant faithfulness when matthew uses this phrase the law and the prophets he's pointing to the entirety of the old testament scriptures you and i hear this phrase and we think of something very specific but but jesus is saying that the golden rule sums up all of the scriptures The law, these commandments that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai is, is essentially the national identity of these people of God. It's, it's what codifies the attitudes of their hearts and their minds and their actions. It's what God intended to set them apart from the rest of the nations and their lesser gods and their lesser ethics of moral behavior. And through these series of contrasts which have made up this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he's been showing them what he refers to later as the weightier matters of the law. We've seen that these scribes and these Pharisees, the, who's, who were viewed as the most righteous people of their culture, that Jesus says our righteousness is to surpass their Righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees were, were fixated on the things that had to be done. But their hearts, for many of them, were far from the matter. And so in verse 12, this what we call the golden rule, it's the ethical climax of this entire sermon. It summarizes everything that has been said before. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the, the low bar that Phil talked about when he preached a number of weeks ago that he pointed us toward. This this is the hack, if you will, into the 619 commandments of the law. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. I can't possibly remember all the requirements of the law. But but Jesus says, love love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is all of it. This is all of it. So in the final verses of the sermon then, Jesus, he, he commands us to make a choice. And not to sound overly dramatic, but he's asking you and I to make a life or death decision. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate... The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. It's a challenging exhortation. The the tense of the verb here in the language conveys a single, discrete imperative action. He says, if you want to live, you've got to do this. It's a command, but it's also a choice that we make. As he lays out for us, it's, it's an echo of this scripture passage that we heard this morning from Moses' farewell address to Israel. He says, I've set before you life and good, death and evil. The general picture here that Jesus is painting in our passage this morning is clear there's, there's two gates. A narrow gate and a wide gate. There's two roads. A hard road and an easy road. There's two crowds. A small crowd and a large crowd. And there's two destinations. Eternal life. Or eternal destruction. Not the popular part of our faith to be sure. This narrow and difficult road of discipleship is is contrasted with the broad and easy road that represents a self-centered life that most people live. Throughout the entirety of this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been calling us to die to our self-interest, to elevate the interest of others above our own. That is God's way. That is the way of Jesus. That's the entirety of the life's testimony of Jesus Christ. To deny himself. To take up the cross. To go to the cross. And to make a way that you and I can live in the freedom that we can die to our self-interest. And in the end, it all still works out better than you and I can possibly imagine. Imagine. But the emphasis here is on the fact that there are only two choices. There's only two roads in life. And Jesus says, you've got to choose one or the other. And he says in the second half of verse 14, he says, and those who find it are few. You see, true discipleship, Jesus is saying is really, sadly, chosen only by a minority of all of humankind. Now, does this mean that this gate is obscured or hard to find? Is, is God playing some sort of cosmic trick on us? I've got limited seating in the kingdom, and so only the smartest one of you get to find it? No. No. What Jesus is saying here is that this, this narrow gate, this true entrance into life is obscured by everything else in the world. God hasn't obscured it. He's not hiding it from us. Look at verses 7 through 9 earlier in the chapter. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the, to the one who knocks, it will be open. Jesus is saying, if we take the time to truly look for this narrow way, it's there for us to find. This, this gate can be found when we look for it, when we're attuned to it. The narrow gate and the, the difficult road, they, they represent the rigors of discipleship, the hard call to obeying what God is calling us to do. Now, the metaphor that Jesus uses here, it, it points us to the fact that there are obstacles and diversions that exist that would hinder entering the kingdom. He's pointed them out all along the way through this sermon. And he's saying there's, there's hindrances, there's obstacles and we have to avoid them. So, so what then are these obstacles and these diversions that would cause us to miss the narrow gate or choose the wider road? In a different portion of scripture, he gives this parable of the sower or the four soils. We know that Our faith and obedience is opposed by a force and a will at work in the world that opposes the will of God. But it's also opposed by our culture and our flesh, our worries and the trials of life. But here Jesus gives two warnings. He says there's both external and internal threats to our spiritual lives that we have to be mindful of. In verse 15, he says, beware of the false prophets. Well, who are these false prophets? When you and I, when we hear this phrase prophet, we think, you know, Old Testament prophet, thus saith the Lord. Here here it's a it's a commentary on teachers, preachers. He says, beware of false prophets. In the context of his sermon, he's probably pointing to the scribes and the Pharisees. These blind guides, these hypocrites, this brood of vipers, he calls them elsewhere. But later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 24, we see Jesus saying that that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Jesus is saying that these false prophets are always in our midst. We see them in every New Testament letter. The opponents of Paul. The history of of the Christian church is a long story of controversy with false teachers. They've been part of Satan's plan to do harm to God's kingdom and to the church. But in the overarching providence of God, they've also given the church occasion to think and to use our minds and, and to clarify right doctrine And belief. As a result of these false teachers, we have the very creeds that we confess. One which we'll confess this morning. The very doctrinal statement of our church. This unifying set of core beliefs that binds us with the church universal. But false prophets, false teachings have caused much damage and they, they still exist today. Jesus tells us they're present. He says they're deceptive, they're dangerous, and they cause damage. He says these false prophets, they come to us in sheep's clothing. They're trying to trick us, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They want to devour the sheep. They want to bring about our spiritual death. They're deceptive, they're dangerous, and they cause damage. They're They so muddle the gospel that they make it hard for seekers to find the narrow gate. That's what these scribes and Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. They were making, following the law, seemingly so unobtainable that people couldn't find this low bar that Jesus had set for them. It's no different today. Whether it's fundamentalism, whether it's a, a prosperity gospel, whether it's liberal theology, whatever the threat. But they all are claiming to be teachers of the truth. But what Jesus is telling us is that there is an objective truth. That objective truth is Christ and what he's been teaching. We, we have it in the form of the scriptures. We have it in the apostolic tradition of our faith that has been faithfully handed down over the centuries. But he also, in his loving kindness, tells us how we can recognize these false prophets. He says you'll recognize them by their fruits. Although we might mistake a wolf for a sheep, it might be hard to discern who's a sheep and who's a wolf. Especially if we're looking through the lens of the world and, and the metrics we have of success. But Jesus says you'll recognize them by their fruit. Because you can't mistake a tree for its fruit. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. No. This fruit that he's talking about, this fruit I, I think that all too often in the North American church, we tend to judge the success of preachers and teachers and churches by. It's, it, that's the fruit of the world. Jesus is saying we'll know them by the fruit of their character and their conduct. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the fruit by which we will recognize these teachers. And Jesus says we must test teachers by their teaching. And we must test them by their influence. It's not just the things that they say because there's a lot of false prophets in the world today that sound good. But what's the influence that they're having on the world? The people that they're influencing, what is their conduct? What are the things that they're saying? What are the things that they're doing? How loving are they toward God and their neighbor? Paul, again, writing to his protege, Timothy, in the in the second letter he writes, warns him of two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus. He calls them a gangrene. They're rotting flesh that's spreading throughout the body. Jesus says there are false teachers in the church and we're to be on our guard. And it's the responsibility of the leadership of the church, the elders and the pastors, and the congregation to be wary of these false prophets. Look at verse 19. He says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, thus you will recognize them by your fruits, by their fruits rather. It's interesting. The John the Baptist in the third chapter of Matthew's gospel is saying the same thing. He says, repent for the kingdom Of heaven is at hand and the the axe is laid at the root of the tree for every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What we do, the fruit that we bear as God's people, matters as much or more than what we say. In verses 21 to 23, Jesus presents another contrast, a contrast between saying and doing. If the previous verses pointed us toward the external threat, if you will, the threat outside of our bodies and our hearts and our minds, this is pointing us toward the internal threat, the threat that lives inside of us. And Jesus says that, our eternal destiny will be settled by whether we do what we say. Friends, make no mistake, a a verbal profession of Christ is indispensable to our faith. Paul tells us in the 10th chapter of Romans that we have to confess with our lips and believe in our heart. And a true profession of Christ is impossible without the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that illuminates to us the narrow gate. The same Spirit that beckons us to walk on the narrow way. But Jesus is telling us is that there are those who will profess Christ that in the end he will not even recognize them. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, one thing to note here is, is we look at these professions of these people who ultimately Jesus says, I, I never knew you. Is that they're, they're respectful and reverent. They're calling Jesus Lord. Lords, Lord, they're fervent, they're zealous, they're orthodox, they know, they're acknowledging Jesus for who he is. And they're public, and he says even they're doing spectacular things. Casting out demons, prophesying the truth, healing diseases. Yet Jesus says I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness. What's what's wrong with the professions that we see in this text? It's difficult for you and I to see because we can only judge the external things but but God knows the hearts of humankind. God looks at the hearts of man. As God makes his perfectly divine, righteous judgment of you and I. And what Jesus is pointing out is that this is talk without truth. It's a profession of something without a reality that's bearing the fruit in their lives. It's it's a profession of their lips, but not their lives. And Jesus says our entire life has to speak to who is our God. And verse 23 is, is staggering. It's, it's intimidating. It's even a bit fear inducing. It, these words of theirs, these works of theirs, it doesn't save them on the day of judgment. They called Jesus Lord, but never submitted to his Lordship. They called Jesus Lord, Lord. They did things in his name, but they never really obeyed the will of their heavenly father because the intentions of their heart, the content of their character, was off. So we need to remember that God is hes not impressed by all of our, our words and our activities and our church attendance record and the check boxes on our Bible reading plan. Those things are important. But he requires the evidence of our our sincerity in in good works and obedience. A heart-level obedience that God has been calling us to throughout the sermon. And so, Jesus now, having given this contrast between saying and doing, he he now gives a contrast between hearing and doing in, in verses 24 to 27. He says, The true disciple of Christ must be both a hearer and a doer of the words. And friends, this, this is nothing new. This is the biblical pattern we see from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. God's instructions to Adam and Eve in the garden were to, to listen to his teaching and to obey his teaching. To do what he told them to do. To cultivate and expand the boundaries of the garden. To be fruitful and to multiply. To subdue and to rule the earth. To join God in ruling over all of his creation. But to do it God's way. Not their way. His call to Abraham. His call to Moses. His call to the nation of Israel was always to hear and to do. Our thoughts and our words and our deeds matter to God. The idea of both hearing and doing may seem like a threat to the current vision and the Christian hope of many. Our gospel is one of faith by grace, but oftentimes we can confuse this idea of grace and effort. You see, God is not opposed to our efforts, friend. God's opposed to earning. You and I don't earn anything by our efforts. God's opposed to earning, but he's not opposed to our efforts, we have to be hearers and doers of the of the word. We live in a time and place where this consumer Christianity that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, it's, it's become the accepted norm. Far too many of us, and I'm guilty of this as well, we're seeking an experience. The first time I walked into this church, two years before I became a member, I told my wife, yeah, this isn't for us. It wasn't the experience I was looking for. I'm ashamed to tell you that. Some of us may feel like engaging all out with Jesus in the radical way that the choice he's asking us to make, it feels like overdoing it. But the real question isn't whether we hear Christ's teaching or or either, or whether even we respect or believe it. James, the half brother of Jesus, he says, he says, even the demons believe that God is one. Demons believe that God is one. They believe that Jesus is Lord. They know who He is. But they've chosen to disobey God. So the question for us is whether we put our beliefs into practice. The question is is whether we do what we know and we do what we say whether we make the lordship of Jesus which we profess do we make that one of the most pervasive realities of our lives. And again that salvation does not come by works the The whole of the New Testament tells us that salvation only comes by the sheer grace of God through faith. But the scriptures also tell us, and Jesus tells us here, that our faith is expressed by our works. We see this in other epistles. John says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. James says, show me your faith, I'll show you my works. Faith without works is dead. And then look at verse 25. Jesus says, well, what is it that, that if our words and our works prove the genuineness of our faith in some sense, what is it that truly tests and proves the genuineness of our faith? He says, and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The rock that is Jesus. A true adherence and a living out of his teaching is the bedrock of our spiritual lives. And it enables us to withstand the storms and the trials of life. Peter says the genuineness of our faith is tested by the fire of various trials so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so at the end of his sermon here, Jesus says, the wise person builds their house on the rock. Christ, who is the narrow gate, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way that you and I get onto the narrow path is through the door that Christ has opened to us. And Jesus says, if if you want to withstand the trials of life, and in this life there will be trouble, so many of us in this body have experienced them and are experiencing them and will experience them, the only way that our spiritual building that is our lives, our souls, our lives, the only way it stands is to have built it on the rock. And so what can we do to actually put ourselves in a position to actually do What Jesus has said here. It's tempting to look at the Sermon on the Mount as just a series of little sayings that are all conglomerated together in this portion of Scripture and argue about, was this a real sermon or is this just a collection of Jesus' teachings? I I don't think that's worth our time. I think it all holds together here as, as I think we've been pointing one another toward in the last six or seven weeks. I mean, you and I hear these words and we think, yeah, I want a rich and unshakable life. That sounds really attractive to me. I want to be free of loneliness, free of anxiety, free of worldly worry. That sounds really attractive to me. I want to be free of anger, envy, lust, deceitfulness, covetousness. I want to be free of all those things. And I know you do too. I want to be full of love for God and love for neighbor. But as we've pointed out earlier in our series, it's it, it's not as simple as saying, yeah, don't worry. Oh, yeah, I got that solved. Yeah, don't, don't anger. Yep, yeah, got it. The point is, friends, that we have to, we can't become those who hear and do without specifically training for it. And I, you may not agree with me, but I think the church, the North American church, I think we've done a terrible job of of creating disciples in a lot of respects. We've become a church that's elevated knowledge over heart change. I might be I want to be careful not to paint a broad brush, but I just want you to think about that, that, that it's a challenge. Too many of our discipleship programs focus on, on behavior modification that doesn't really get at the root of the human problem. The heart of the problem, as it were, is, is the character of our inner life. We've done, through church discipleship problems, more than our fair share of collecting and conveying interesting information. And most, if not all of you, possess the correct information, more so than me in a lot of respects. If, if, if we had a Bible knowledge test, most of you would do really well, many of you better than me. But does this information form a part of our real lives? That's, that's the question that we need to constantly lay before ourselves as we face these external and these internal threats to our spiritual lives. Even though we consciously affirm it to be true, does, do we act maybe as though it's not true? I know from time to time I do. It's easy to respond in my flesh. I'm often. Amazed and ashamed. At, at, at how I can respond. So what do we need to elevate friends? And I, I can't give you the answer in three points. In 38 minutes and 55 seconds. Just keeping my record here. Um, but I want to if anything just plant the seed. That we've got to set our hearts, our minds and our wills on the person and the work of Christ. We've got to submit all of our lives to this idea of who Christ is and who He's calling us to be. It's, it's what Jesus and John, His forerunner mean when they're calling us to repent. You see, our goal is not more knowledge, it's to be competent disciples of Jesus. Can we do what we know? Can our walk in the power of the Holy Spirit replace the patterns of wrongdoing and the automatic response that comes out of our flesh? Is our faith solid enough that you and I can endure the trials of life, the very trials that God allows in your life, in my life, to be part of this process of building our spiritual home. Can we bring our minds and our bodies into conformity with Christ? And how do we do that? We have to train to it. An example that, that someone has used in the past that comes to mind is, you know, uh, throwing free throws on a basketball court. I can decide, yeah, I want to be a good free thrower, but I, I can't just walk out, pick up a ball and, and throw a free throw. You have to train. You have to practice. Same thing with riding a bike. You've got to train. So Jesus, the greater Moses, he's, he's set before us in this Sermon on the Mount. He like we heard. He's set before us life and good, death and evil. He's, he set before us in this sermon a, a set of values and ideals which is entirely distinctive and set apart from the ways of the world. He's called us to, to renounce and separate us from our worldly idea, even our church's idea of culture. And to form a distinctly Christian contrast culture, to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of of the world, to manifest a righteousness so deep that it even reaches our hearts and a love so broad that it embraces our neighbors and even our enemies. A harder road, a narrow gate, and a more difficult path is what Christ has called us to. And friends, I I just want to begin to get us to think in the direction that Christ is calling us to walk further down this harder path than we may have been walking for the entirety of our Christian lives. I want to end with a quote from John Stott. He's a pastor and theologian. He's deceased, but he says, In applying this book to ourselves, the Bible, He says, we need to consider that the Bible is a dangerous book to read and that the church is a dangerous society to join. For in reading the Bible, we hear the words of Christ and in joining the church, we say we believe in Christ. And as a result, we belong to the company described by Jesus as both hearing his teaching and calling him Lord. Our membership, he says, therefore lays upon us the deadly serious responsibility of ensuring that what we know and what we say is translated into what we do. Are are we on the right road? That's a question we have to ask ourselves every day. Have we Are we building our spiritual house to Jesus' code? Are we building it on the rock? There's no other alternative. It's life or death. And Jesus is calling us in this sermon to make this radical choice. Would you pray with me? Well, Father... We are so grateful that you have made a way for all of us through your son, Jesus. That he who was begotten of you, who existed with you before time, left his heavenly abode and came to earth and put on flesh, experienced every temptation, every trial of life. That he can more than fully identify with each of us and what we yearn for, what we struggle through, what we're experiencing. And that he went to the cross and he suffered unimaginable suffering on our behalf. That he even experienced the separation from you, God, that we will never experience. That he could restore us to you. To make a way, Lord. To have pointed us toward the narrow gate through his life and his words and his works. But also, Father, through the testimony of your Holy Spirit which calls to each of us, which calls to all mankind. Your desire, Lord, is that none would be lost and that all would be saved. And so, Father, heighten our sense of awareness to see and to walk along this narrow, this harder path, Lord. Show us, Father, where we can grow in our capacity to, to do what we say. Father, I pray that you would help us, help the pastors of this church, the people who serve here, all of us, the body who serves together in this community to spur one another on to love and good deeds. That we would be transformed into the likeness of your Son. That we would put off the ways of the world and the flesh the assaults of the enemy, and that we would be your church. Father, you've purposed that the church is part and parcel to bringing about your kingdom of heaven on this earth in this age. Father, help us to be those people. And so we pray all these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us stand.